very much, and thanks, Emily, for that very kind introduction. I always laugh when people tell my story because I'm sort of the poster child for how you can wander through medicine and sort of end up in a great place, no matter how hard I try to screw everything up. Everything seemed to work out finally. So um, I'm excited to talk to you guys today. And when Emily asked me to come, I said, well, I'm happy to come and talk, but I don't know anything about endocrinology. I rely on Emily for that. I always have. But I am happy to talk about something that's really important to me, and I'm certain really important to many, if not all of you in this room. And, and that's the notion of clinical research and the importance of integrity in clinical research because it's so um, meaningful to the mission of pediatric medicine. So I don't have any financial conflicts of interest, but I do have all the usual non-financial conflicts of interest, and I think they're really important, right? So we get really affected by our egos and our pride and our need for academic recognition. We always think about conflicts of interest as money, but I think it's sometimes really important that we think about all those non-financial conflicts of interest that have such a big impact on the way we perceive our work and the way we perform our work. And the other sort of conflict is I do always have a desire to get some sympathy. Sympathy for the devil is what I call it. But it's really sympathy for the work of the IRBs because I spend a lot of time doing that work. And I think it's really important. And I understand how frustrating it is for people. So part of my talk today is to sort of help, us, help you understand what I see as the IRBs work and get a little sympathy. So the specific lessons are to think about the history of research and apply some of those lessons to the ethical issues arising in research today. I want to think about some uh, current clinical research questions from an ethics perspective. And if we do this right, we're all going to leave here with some enhanced sensitivity about the challenges and the conflicts inherent in clinical research. Now, actually, my talks are always very open. So if you want to interrupt me and ask a question, go ahead and do it, because that's this is normally sort of a, a free-flowing discussion with people who are doing research. So I'm always happy to get challenged, listen to questions anytime. Okay, so why do I spend my time talking about this? I am committed to the notion that research is central to the goals of medicine, no matter how you paint the goals of medicine. Research is really how we move the whole project forward. So the narrow sense of the goals of medicine is that the job of medicine is to prevent and treat disease. So obviously the tremendous successes in medicine have really come from research, which pushes the envelope and then applied thoughtfully to the care that we provide to the patients in front of us. The other sort of very broad notion of the goals of medicine is to promote well-being generally. And that, you know, I love that notion because it's so broad. I mean, the idea of well-being is certainly as big as the universe, and it's challenging to think of the goals of medicine to promote well-being generally. But no matter how you frame the goals of medicine, research is really central to the core. If we're going to get anything done, we need to keep moving, keep asking questions, keep moving the project forward. At the same time, then, the trust that we engender between the physician and the patient is actually critical to making any of this work. If we, if we don't have the trust of our community, the trust of our patients, the trust of the whole community, the trust of society, people can, the, the whole, the enterprise of medicine will, will fail. And I think I'm going to show you later that we're sort of, we've, we've really scuffed up the reputation of medicine significantly, part of it through failures to recognize the importance of integrity in research. Right now, you know, you can open the paper every day and notice attacks on science, attacks on the very idea of expertise. I think those attacks are important, and I think they're actually quite dangerous. And I think one of the reasons we've been open to those attacks is that we haven't minded the store all that well. So today is a real challenge about what it is to mind that particular store. 
Are we minding our own mission? So why, the, when we talk about res, uh, re, uh, ethics and clinical research, we really focus on the protection of human subjects. What's the story of why we focus so hard on the protection of human subjects? It's really a 20th century history for the most part. I don't have to explain the Nuremberg trials and the Nuremberg Code, except to remind everybody it was a response to atrocities, like really remarkable awfulness during the Second World War and treatment of um, prisoners as research subjects totally against their will in brutal and awful ways. So that was sort of, uh, you know, became sort of a, a pigeonhole almost in history that people thought, yes, that was an awful thing. We've learned from it. We're not going to keep doing it. But then near the sort of the last quarter of the, of the 20th century, a lot of stuff came to light, this, this notion of really the atrocities by presumably well-meaning and intelligent researchers. So it's important to remember that these were presumably well-meaning and intelligent researchers. And I can even take presumably out. I will guarantee you that the people who uh, perpetrated the what we're thinking of now as the atrocities of Tuskegee, the atrocities of the Guatemala syphilis study, Willowbrook, they were sort of people just like us, people who were passionate about an important question and focused entirely on answering that question. The problem was that the focus was so entire on answering the question that they failed to recognize some of the human subjects issues alongside it. I want to talk for just a minute about some of these to make sure that everybody, that we're all on the same page. I think everybody has heard of the Tuskegee study, so I'm going to leave that one aside for a second. The Willowbrook study, how many of you are aware of the Willowbrook study? Yeah, so several people. It's a really important study in the history of research, especially pediatric research. So I'm going to take you through it just very quickly. Willowbrook was an institution in New York State, an institution uh, for uh, severely mentally retarded children at a time when children were institutionalized when they were profoundly delayed as opposed to kept at home. Willowbrook was understood to be one of the better institutions at the time, so there was a long waiting list to get in. Uh, conditions inside Willowbrook were sort of not really surprisingly bad, but yeah, it was a place where it was, it's really hard, it, the, the hygiene issues were not really all that well attended to, profoundly retarded children living together in small spaces. Turned out that hepatitis was a huge problem in Willowbrook. Uh, children would routinely become infected with hepatitis after having been at Willowbrook for six months or so. So some uh, important researchers decided to take a look at the hepatitis in Willowbrook, really with an idea to sort of separating out the different strains of hepatitis. It was sort of just hepatitis at the time, not hepatitis A or hepatitis B. The idea was to, to do a natural history study of hepatitis at Willowbrook because everybody got hepatitis anyway. So what they did, though, in order to do this natural history study was to actively infect children with hepatitis. Now today, that, just, that sentence just seems completely bonkers, right? Actively in, infect a group of children who are profoundly mentally retarded with hepatitis so you can watch and figure out more about hepatitis. It's, so the, and the way they did it, the other thing that they did was they used the fact that people really wanted to get their children into Willowbrook because it was one of the best institutions, the best schools for kids with, mental, with a profound developmental delay. So they offered parents a spot at the, at the head of the waiting list for Willowbrook if they agreed to enroll their children in this, what they call the vaccine trial. The consent form was not really a consent form because at the time, you know, though there was no law about consent forms at the time, so they sort of lied in the consent form to say that this was a vaccine trial, your child might get hepatitis, when actually what they were doing was actively infecting children with hepatitis 
justification being, oh, they'll get it anyway, but actively infecting them by feeding them a slurry with infected feces in it so that they would definitely get hepatitis and they could watch. So as I tell this story, I can feel the tension in the room. It's an ugly story. But I'll guarantee you that the people who uh, designed and implemented that trial, to the very end, uh, defended it and said it was the right way to do this. It was a, it was a completely valid approach. It came out uh, in the 1970s what was going on at Willowbrook, and people were horrified. Tuskegee's story um, is also an incredibly important story and one that's very powerful in the history of the United States. And the key thing I wanted to mention about the Tuskegee story is the timeline. So the Tuskegee story, as you know, was a, uh, I intended to be a, a study of untreated syphilis in African-American men in the South. And the idea was it was going to start out as in 1932, they just wanted to record the natural history of syphilis, hoping to justify treatment programs for African-Americans because funding had been cut for treatment programs. So it was really, this was like really intended to be a study just to, to prompt the government to refund some of these programs. It was intended to be a six-month study just to show the natural history of untreated syphilis. It ended up lasting for 40 years. And it's not entirely clear why it was lasted for why it lasted for 40 years, except that one thing I really want everybody to understand. In those 40 years where men who were identified as having syphilis were left untreated despite the fact that treatment was routinely available and even encouraged by the federal government and the public health service, that study was reviewed and refunded every two years. So it's easy to think, well, Tuskegee was a bad idea that somebody set into place and left it there. But what really happened was Tuskegee was intended to be a short study, got renewed, 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 renewed every couple years, reviewed by the U.S. Public Health Service, reviewed by Tuskegee Institute, and, and uh, re-implemented every couple of years. So you can see the story is a little bit different. It's easy to say that Tuskegee was a mistake that somebody made, but really it was this recurrent review and reassessment of a study that now sort of stands as a paradigm for how bad it can really get when, when researchers stop thinking about their subjects as human beings. So the Willowbrook study and the Tuskegee study, and I included the uh, Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital study and the Guatemala syphilis study, you may or may not know about those, but they're sort of similar stories about uh, uh, implementation of research without consent. In some, in some, especially in the syphilis study, in a tremendously egregious way. So those uh, studies and the concerns about those studies prompted the U.S. government to, to rethink, to rethink the way that we're approaching uh, protections of human subjects. And as Emily said, I studied philosophy in college along with biology, so every time I get a chance to talk about Kant, I think I get an extra point in heaven. So I'm going to do it. So the way that we approach really the question of human subjects research right now really comes from Kant. And Kant said, act in such a way that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, always at the same time as an end, and never merely as a means to an end. Now anybody who tried to study Kant in college will recognize this sort of language because it's, it's like the, the sentences are so circular, you really have to peel them apart. But really the point that Kant was making is that Sometimes we do use other human beings as a means to an end, but you absolutely can never use them only as a means to an end. They always, we always have to see each other as humans, as an end in themselves. Every human being is an end in himself or herself. So Kant's point was, you can't use other people 
simply as a means to an end. Okay. So the challenge then is when we do research, especially research using human subjects, there's always a fine balance because we are using other human beings as a means to an end. Right? Let me say it again. Researchers are using other human beings as a means to an end. That should make us feel like, ugh, I don't really intend to be a user, as my children used to say. Research demands that fine balance because we are using other human beings as a means to an end. So the point of ethics and clinical research is that it's never solely as a means to an end, but always at the same time as an end in themselves. The problem here is, as I sort of implied in my introduction, is that the ends of research are generalizable knowledge to make the world a better place, but the ends of research also include all of those personal goals of prestige, promotion, and financial stability. That conflict of interest is inherent in research. So the role of research ethics, the function of research ethics, is to make us think twice and remember that there's this conflict of interest that we need to be very careful about. We need to allow our systems to protect us sort of from ourselves in this situation. So the problems that came up, like with Tuskegee and the Willowbrook study, they really, it's also sort of interesting. It's not like we didn't have any idea that this was going to be a problem. I talked about the Nuremberg Code, the Nuremberg Trials, and the Nuremberg Code, which you think would have been dramatic enough. But even before Nuremberg, in 1865, Claude Bernard, the principle of medical and surgical morality consists in never performing on man an experiment which might be harmful to him in any extent. Right? So think about what Willowbrook was all about. Performing experiments on vulnerable children was harmful to them, even though the result might be highly advantageous to science. That was 1865. It's not like these are new ideas. William Osler, I said I got a point for talking about Kant. I get two points for talking about Osler. Every talk from Hopkins, you have to mention Osler somewhere in there. But Osler said, in, in 1907, researchers can experiment on patients only if direct benefit is likely and only with full consent. Think about the Tuskegee trial. Right? There was no consent because they didn't tell the patients what they were doing. They didn't tell these patients that they were subjects even. They told them they were patients. Not that they were subjects in a research trial. No attempt at informed consent. Osler goes on, otherwise the sacred cord which binds physician and patient snaps instantly. That's the trust I'm talking about. Without that trust, we're not going anywhere in medicine. So anything we do in clinical research that threatens that trust not only between doctor and patient, but between society and medicine, threatens the whole mission of medicine, and I don't think we're being careful enough. 1916, Walter Cannon, again, reflecting on the dangers that we were facing, pushed the AMA to mandate informed consent for research. And the AMA said, oh, we don't really need it. We're good guys, right? We're going to be fine. And the AMA said that misconduct in research was just a problem of some rogue researchers, not research itself and that trust between physicians, trust between researchers, would foster better research and clinical care. This was in, in 1916, and you see what happened in the ensuing decades. 1966, uh, Beecher wrote an incredible article in New England Journal of Medicine where he decided just to expose what he saw going on in research. Described 22 studies in which subjects were used in the interest of generalizable knowledge, that's what we're trying to create, but without any benefit to the subject and without consent. That was sort of an explosive article when it came out. It took a long time for him to get it published because he exposed the, the fallacy in what the AMA had said, that 
that conflicts of interest in research are the problem of rogue researchers, he really pointed out this is everybody's problem. And it wasn't bad guys in stupid institutions. This was Harvard, this was MIT, this was everybody was really participating in research that really could not be justified even with regard to the Nuremberg Code. And I love this note that uh, Beecher included. A particularly pernicious myth is the one that depends on the view that the ends justify the means. A study is ethical or not at its inception. Right? So he's really harking back to Kant. He gets points too. He's harking back to Kant really saying it's about this notion that the ends justify the means that will get us in trouble every time. So after Beecher's article, after the, the sort of the anxiety created by exposure of Willowbrook and Tuskegee and these similar studies, the federal government convened the Belmont Commission. And the Belmont Commission was charged with trying to understand, trying to redesign our approach to ethics and clinical research to really figure out how to protect human subjects. If you have 20 minutes, I highly recommend that you get online, Google Belmont Report, and read the Belmont Report. It's only about 10 or 15 pages. It was written at a time the way before every government document had to be at least 1,000 pages. It's like this lovely, succinct, thoughtful document that has a, had a huge impact on the way we perceive ethics in research and ethics in medicine, actually. Key points from the, Bel from the Belmont Report is that there's a big difference between research and clinical practice. How many of you do both research and see patients? Yeah, so that's sort of... Uh, you know, it's a really important group of people, those of us who both see patients and do research. But remember, though, the challenge here is that when I'm wearing my clinical care hat, I am pretty much not conflicted. I mean, I work in an academic clinic, so money is not a big part of it. And my focus is really on the well-being of the patient in front of me. It's a pretty simple relationship. That's my job, and it's like that's what I'm focused on. When we're wearing our clinical research hat, it's really not nearly so clear because the focus of clinical research is not necessarily on the well-being of the patient in front of us. It's the well-being of patients generally. But the whole point of the doctor-patient relationship is your relationship with the patient in front of you. So the problem with the, this difference between clinical practice and clinical research is that in research, there are those conflicts of interest. We are conflicted. Our well, the the well-being of the patient is not really our goal. The goal is knowledge. So we, we really sort of step away from what is so important about the doctor-patient relationship. Research is very dangerous when clinician researchers don't remember that difference. When clinician researchers feel like as researchers, they have the same freedom as they have as clinicians. I make decisions based on the well-being of the patient in front of me that may not necessarily comport to the standards. I may have a different idea about the patient in front of me because I know who they, where they live, and I know that, well, this medication might work, but there's no way in the world this patient's going to take an antibiotic four times a day, so I'll go to the second-line antibiotic because it's only twice a day, and I think it's going to be safe enough. You don't get to do that in clinical research because it's really not, you're not making decisions about the well-being of the subject in front of you, so you really have to toe the line. The other key point in the Belmont Report is that we have to develop these basic principles that guide research. And those include respect for persons, the notion of beneficence, which is promoting well-being, and real attention to justice. And I want to talk a little bit about what those things mean. When we talk about uh, the, the, the principle of respect for persons, it's really based on our notion of autonomy. Autonomy meaning self-rule, capacity for self-rule. That notion that we recognize each other as human beings and that we are in charge of ourselves. We have a sense of the good and we 
can act towards creating, to, to moving towards our sense of the good. That's the notion of autonomy. To reflect that in research, the idea is that participation in research absolutely must be voluntary and must be informed. So as pediatricians, you can sort of hear why that's such a special problem for research with adolescents or even children who are developing some incomplete capacity for participation in, in decision making. The notion of beneficence is really that we ought not to harm. Specifically, we can't harm an individual subject no matter what benefits might accrue for society. Unless, of course, there is some direct benefit to that subject attached. Overall, the idea is to promote well-being by maximizing benefits and minimizing harms. Those things are very much part of clinical care as well. Justice is, I think, the most interesting and complicated part of the Belmont Report's focus on principles that should guide research, because this is the one I think we do the most poorly. I think we actually can be pretty good about respect for autonomy, even though our consent process is often almost impossible to decipher, but at least we understand what we're trying to get done. Same for beneficence. But justice, I think we stumble on this one a lot. And I think sort of the structure of research makes us stumble here. The, selection, the, the points about, that the Belmont Report uh, made about justice is that the selection of subjects is a big part of it. The selection of subjects should always reflect the research question. Now that one's sort of easy because that's good science too. So that one's sort of easy to pick out. You're not going to do a study about a blood pressure medicine that should help 70-year-old men and use 20-year-old women as your subjects. That's sort of bad science. We all get that. That's, that's easy. But the next one, it should reflect the population that will benefit. One of the stories that has made me pretty crazy lately is the, um, the stories about the new hepatitis C drug. It's not so new anymore. So the work done to develop a new hepatitis, a drug to treat hepatitis C was done, part of it was done in Baltimore. And the subjects in that research were poor uh, patients in East Baltimore who were affected with hepatitis C. Uh, we supported that research. I think Emily and I sat on the IRB that approved some of that research. And then that drug comes out, and that drug costs $80,000, right? So think about the population of subjects that lent themselves to the development of that drug, and then think of what that drug costs. That absolutely, the selection of subjects did not reflect the population that will benefit because of cost. And that's a real concern, I think, in the way that we're proceeding with uh, especially drug research these days. Justice also says that we should avoid exploitation, and specifically avoid um, Specifically, the focus is on vulnerable subjects that might be exploited due to their availability, their inability to refuse. In East Baltimore, it's almost, almost sometimes sort of a joke with our community that almost all of the research done, the clinical research done at Hopkins, is done patients from East Baltimore. East Baltimore, those of you who don't know, is an incredibly poor, underserved area. Well, not underserved, just incredibly poor. Underserved by education, underserved by the federal government and the state government, but certainly not underserved by healthcare because Hopkins is sitting right there in the middle of the neighborhood, you know, bringing everybody in. But we use that patient, that, sub, that patient population as our subject population. Not necessarily, right? Not necessarily because they're the subjects that are going to benefit from the work, but because they're there. And because research is so expensive, you want to get the easiest people to get. And in Baltimore, that's the East Baltimore patient population. Now, sometimes our patients are finally saying, hey, wait a minute. Why don't you do this study 10 miles up the road where everybody's wealthy? Why are you always using us as a subject? Because, in fact, it is exploiting that neighborhood, right? I mean, to be really honest about it, we are exploiting our patient population because they're the easiest population for us to get. That's something that I think people who do research in urban areas or research anywhere have to think twice about. How are we selecting our patient population, our subject population?
because we are we do tend to exploit. What we're trying to do in Baltimore is have a much broader conversation with our community to make sure that we all sort of get why this is happening and that we can agree on it. But it's really that relationship between the hospital and the community is very important in research, and we have to be very clear about the notion of exploitation. I talked a little bit about vulnerability, and one of the interesting problems in research is we have a narrow view of vulnerability, when really I think the challenge in, in good clinical ethics is to have a very broad view of who are who's vulnerable. We can, the easy vulnerabilities are people who are poor, right? So people who are poor or people who don't have capacity to consent. But I love this uh, from an article by Kipnis, this very broad notion of vulnerability that you see is a little bit different uh, from this, um, the sort of the standard definitions. We really need to think when we're designing research about the vulnerabilities that might be cognitive. Actually, in pediatrics, cognitive vulnerability is not just well, dementia on the adult side, but really that notion of a developing capacity to consent. So children really don't have much capacity to consent. We need to think about the notion of assent, whether we're being honest about assent as children are developing. But really, the sort of developing capacity to consent is something that's really important in pediatric research. Prisoners, though, you know, we can't really do much research at all on prisoners anymore because that was such a clear-cut vulnerability. Deferential research, I wonder how many of us, I know I certainly did. When I was a medical student, I was sort of involved enrolled in research totally against my will. I mean, it was nobody gave me the option when I was a medical student to participate in these clinical trials. Even when I was a resident, I think you sort of got enrolled into research, and it was really hard to say no because of your, your position, you're under authority. Medical vulnerability when people are sick and have an untreatable illness, I think that sort of speaks to the notion of phase one clinical trials in oncology. The vulnerability of people with an untreatable cancer massive, and so that's sort of people participate in phase one clinical trials uh, without much concern. And then allocational poverty, which we know a lot about. Uh, briefly, I just, the, the, I do, I'm an advocate for good research with adolescent subjects, and I think for many, many years we've sort of thought that the, the Belmont's first principle sort of turned us away from uh, involving adolescents in research. I think that that's not really true. I think, in fact, that if you turn the, the you can sort of turn the first principles upside down and rethink our approach to uh, research with adolescents. So the old, the, the notion for respect, that adolescents are cognitively and emotionally vulnerable and should be protected. We turn that upside down and really think about it differently, that research should recognize adolescents' emerging autonomy. I really admire, this work is from Mary Ott, who's at the University of Indiana. And I think that this, um, this idea that we really need to support and advocate for research involving adolescents is very important to the sort of the ongoing mission of pediatrics. So the same with beneficence, that adolescents have specific vulnerabilities and research might not be in their best interest, but really think again that there's a benefit from participating in research that might be more than just the research itself, just the notion of being an adolescent and making the world a better place might be something that we should explore a little bit further. And finally, the notion of justice, that adolescents should not be exploited in research for the benefit of others. But if we don't include adolescents in research, then we've really created a new age-related health disparity. That's true for pediatric and adolescent research both. But I think it's really important that we think hard about the advocating for adolescent, for adolescent involvement in research, even with regard to the first principles. So the Belmont guidelines are implemented in the US, uh, as you guys all know, with the institutional review boards. And in other countries, there are other codes that work as well, the Declaration of Helsinki, the WHO guidelines. And I love the International Conference on Harmonization. Don't you think at this time in the world we need a conference on harmonization? It's such a wonderful idea. 
But those of you who know this work, it's really about harmonizing drug trials across nations. I just love the phrase, International Conference on Harmonization. We could all buy into that one, I think. Um, those of you who have ever submitted something to an IRB probably know a lot of this, but I like thinking about what is the IRB charged to do? The Institutional Review Board is charged to make sure that the research that you're conducting won't, is uh, adequately protecting the subjects, but also that it's good science, it's good research, that there's going to be some information to come out of it. So this is the list of the minimum requirements of IRB review. And I just have it in another graphic here. So the first question before the IRB, if you're submitting something, is, is the design sound? And those of you who have sat, participated on an IRB ever, will notice that that's actually really fascinating. A lot of times protocols come through the IRB and you read the whole protocol and you think, I have no idea what this investigator is trying to find. So if you're submitting something to an IRB, that first question, does the IRB know what you're trying to get done? That's a really important question. And I think we've sent a lot of stuff back saying, I'm just not quite sure what you're trying to ask here. Then the question is, is the risk reasonable in relation to the benefit? And that's just the PI's assessment of risk is very important here, especially in pediatrics. Those of you who do research with, with children, the clinical research, know how complicated this notion of risk is in pediatrics. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, we have a concern about subject selection. That really gets back to the justice notion in the Belmont Report. Safeguards for the vulnerable. Is there informed consent? Is the informed consent process something that's reasonable and clear? I think this is, again, a huge challenge for those of us who conduct research because the informed consent process these days is often really directed, feels like directed by legal and regulatory guidance as opposed to good sense. Otherwise, how would you come up with a consent document that's 20 pages long and in, almost impossible to read, right? We strive, we say we're striving for an eighth grade reading level. Most of them are at least at the 11th grade reading level. And how can we explain, how can we hope to actually have a subject set that is, inf that, uh, is informed when we have such complicated uh, consent processes. So you see the rest of how these things, how the IRB is looking at your research. The issue of research with children is, is complicated by this notion of risk. So we have several levels of risk when we're talking about research with children. Minimal risk, slight increase over minimal risk, more than minimal risk, more than minimal risk with benefit, more than minimal risk without benefit. The problem with all of that stuff is that we don't really have any strong sense of what we mean by risk in pediatric research. This is a tremendous challenge because if you're, if you're doing work with children, we do have, we believe that risk really matters, but we have never come up with sort of objective criteria. So one IRB might notice, notice something and call it more than minimal risk, while a second IRB looks at exactly the same protocol and says, this is minimal risk. The differences are really important for the investigator who is going to the, because requirements are different around minimal risk versus more than minimal risk. So Dave Wendler at the NIH has done a lot of interesting work about trying to figure out what we mean by risk. So minimal risk is defined in the, in the guidelines as the risk encountered in normal daily life or within the bounds of routine medical care. So whose normal daily life is my question. The normal daily life of a child in East Baltimore, the risks encountered in the normal daily life of a child in East Baltimore are very different than the risks encountered in the normal, normal daily life of my children. Right? So I think we have to really, it's this notion of the normal daily life has always got us in trouble. Right? So what do we mean by normal? The risk that average children face in daily life. What's the average child? What are we talking about? So it really puts us at, in a hard place because we don't have objective standards for what we mean by risk and investigators are very much affected by that. 
So the subjective definitions of, li of risk leave research exposed to ill-informed and inconsistent interpretations of risk. I can feel sometimes in our IRB system at Hopkins, which is a huge IRB system, there are seven functioning IRBs that meet weekly at Hopkins. But you can hear sometimes when one IRB group versus another IRB group really disagree about the notion of risk because it's so frustrating for investigators. You feel like you cannot get a straight answer on anything, but that is how we're set up. So anybody who might be interested in doing research in clinical ethics, this question about how we're defining research is still something that I think is wide open for work. So ongoing issues in research ethics, uh, these are some of the things that people are, cons are continually working on. Uh, the, the notion of industry influence versus academic freedom is never going away. It's probably getting stronger as industry gets stronger and the industry lobbies get stronger. The relationship between the, the town and the gown, the institution, the relationship between the, the community and the hospital, the research institution, requires very, very careful protection if we're, if we're intending to maintain our, um, the integrity of this research and also the positive relationships that allow us to continue research. This notion of right to try legislation, legislation where patients want access to investigational drugs outside of the research setting is very challenging to the research setting itself. Uh, how do we define quality improvement versus research? I think it opens us to a little bit of risk. Lots and lots of things. So the, one of the points I wanted to make here is that, and I said it earlier, that it's not like those problems in, in research ethics just happen one time and then we're all better. I want to uh, emphasize the point that these problems are ongoing and we still have reasons to be really concerned. So I control the newspapers frequently just to see like where we screwed up recently. This September 2018, I'm sure everybody read this one, the CMO at, at Sloan Kettering resigned after failing to disclose financial conflicts of interest with the industry. Lots of financial conflicts. Now I believe probably that the guy at Sloan Kettering was doing great work and probably full of integrity and probably trying to get all the right things done. But this notion of failing to disclose conflicts of interest just erased everybody's trust. That we cannot do. It's that trust that allows the whole research mission to go forward. And by, by, and he said, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I just didn't think it was important. These didn't really apply to me. I, I knew I was fine. But the failure to disclose gives us every reason to be skeptical and to worry about the product of that research. This is my one endocrinology, one little endocrinology bit in this. 2018, there was a great article in the New York Times, shadowy money behind vitamin D supplements. And the point of the article was about the, the, the one person who's really sort of pushed forward the science about vitamin D and reminded us to test for vitamin D and supplement vitamin D. Pretty good work, I think, from everything I can understand. But it turns out he receives hundreds of thousands, hundreds of, thousands of dollars from the people who make vitamin D supplements. That cannot possibly be okay. Because now I just, that's in the back of my head. Every time I think about vitamin D, I'm wondering, was he telling the truth? Should I pay attention to this? My trust in that research is diminished. I'm sure you guys read 2016, the sugar industry secretly paid for favorable Harvard research. Specifically, this was discovered in 2016, perpetrated several decades before, but Harvard was paying researchers, I mean, the sugar industry was paying researchers at Harvard to emphasize to de-emphasize the relationship between sugar and obesity and emphasize the relationship between fat and obesity. That's awful, right? That's just really awful. Think of like all the years where we suffered under this notion that it's not sugar that makes people fat, it's just eating fat. I mean, 
not true, shown to be not true. But again, people who are trying to follow dietary regulations, dietary uh, guidelines, this sort of research just makes us all say, nobody's going to tell me the truth. I have no idea what to believe. And here's just some other ones. I just want to focus this one in March of 2013 is my very favorite of all time. There was a really famous uh, social scientist in the Netherlands, uh, last name Stample, who it turned out was identified in 2013 to have faked 50 or more articles. I mean faked like I'm going to sit down and have a glass of wine and write up a bunch of numbers and publish them. Crazy faked. And these are some studies that really affect, the, he's a social cognition scientist, so there was. The, the, some of these studies really affect the way we see each other, like one of my favorites, he did a study, published a study saying that people, who, that vegetarians are actually nicer people than meat eaters. I'm sure he's right about that, but the study was completely fake, right, completely fake. Another study saying that in a train station, if the train station is dirty, you're more likely to sit next to somebody who's the same race as you and move away from people who might be of a different race. Seems sort of, wow, yeah, it changes the way we think about each other. Completely faked. Not one shred of evidence in that data at all. He got caught. 50 studies were retracted because he completely made up the data. Finally, one of his grad students ratted him out saying, this is just too weird. I come up with a research idea. He says he'll go collect the data for me. And he comes back with data that perfectly supports my hypothesis. His excuse, you know, his mother wasn't nice to him. That was his excuse. That's sort of how he tried to explain himself, and he just had a troubled childhood. The best part of this story is he wrote a book explaining his whole craziness, and he plagiarized the last part of the book, the last paragraph. But the weird thing that we should notice is that every one of his studies was peer-reviewed. Every single one of his studies was published by a reputable journal and underwent the peer-review process. Why did nobody pay any attention to the fact that he was lying through his teeth? Because they trusted him, right? Because he was famous, because his research was so good and had so much effect that people didn't really question whether or not anybody could recreate that data. So there's, there's one of the big concerns about research is this notion of peer review. Maybe we're not doing a good enough job of peer review. Maybe we're not asking hard enough questions. I'll tell you honestly, if we're not doing a good job, if we're not asking hard enough questions, it's a threat, a really important threat to the mission of clinical research. National Academy of Sciences always sounds like the most important place to publish something, but it turns out if you're a member of the National Academy, you can submit to their journal without peer review. Hence a study published there, female hurricanes are deadlier than male hurricanes. Complete nonsense, but it didn't have to go through peer review. So I'm going to skip some. There's just so many of these things. So that I'm, I'm, you guys have probably uh, identified some of this. There's systematic inappropriate attempts to manipulate the peer review process of several journals across different publishers. That was the Committee on Publication at Ethics in 2015. Journal of Vibration and Control identified a ring of fake peer review. So it involved aliases and fake email addresses and, of reviewers in a, in a successful attempt to get friendly reviews on submissions. We, we really need to be careful. <laughs> Uh, negative trials, the a publication bias against negative trials, it's very difficult to get negative uh, trials published, especially with the drug industry, especially when, when industry is involved. It's very, very difficult to get the fact that a drug doesn't work really published. But that sort of bias leads to really poor policy, certainly waste because people keep trying to replicate that research. It's a terrible, it's a big problem. So 
again, getting back to sort of this notion of integrity in clinical research, why does it even matter? Well, part of it is this notion of professionalism, right? So we have to, we have a duty to honor medicine's contract with society. We have a duty to try and help maintain faith in medicine and faith in research. So this is the Charter on Professionalism published uh, in the early 2000s. And I just want to, part, part of the Charter on Professionalism says that we have a professional commitment to scientific knowledge and to maintain and trust by managing conflicts of interest. Those are really important aspects of the integrity in clinical research that I'm talking about. And the reason that I have concerns is that we are apparently really suffering from some of the loss of the trust that we find so valuable. So more than three-quarters of Americans had great confidence in medical leaders in 1966. Today, only 34% do, right? So it's a huge decline. Trust in individual physicians, happily, is still pretty high. Only one-quarter of Americans express confidence in the healthcare system. Americans, and, Americans are less likely to trust doctors than citizens in other countries. Years ago, the Ebola outbreak, only one-third of Americans said they trusted public health officials to tell them the truth about what was going on. That should chill us, right? That should make us worry. This is us that people are talking about. Why are we at this point? And I think part of it is we have not been careful enough to demand integrity in science and clinical research from our colleagues, from ourselves and our colleagues. So I'm going to finish up because I want to leave time for questions and discussion. So I want to say again, research is central to the mission of medicine. It's central to the goals of medicine. We need to keep pushing the envelope forward. We need to keep making the world a better place for our patients and the patients to come. We cannot do that if we don't have the trust of our society, of our research community, and of our patients. But the way we are conducting research these days leaves us open to very important dangers. And it's you people, it's all of us, who have to sort of raise the bar, start demanding, start asking harder questions, demanding a little bit more aggressively, at the same time, minding our own conflicts of interest. Accept the fact that we have tremendous conflicts of interest in research. Mind that store. Be very careful. This is where I get to the point of supporting IRBs. IRBs are really there to help us avoid our own, uh, our own uh, failures. IRBs recognize that we are often our own worst enemies when it comes to the integrity in clinical research. And the role of the IRB is to keep you safe. Keep your research safe. Ask the right questions so that we can regain that trust or maintain that trust. So integrity is needed. Humility is needed too, right? You have to really understand that you might be the smartest person in the room, but that does not mean that you're safe, right? Ask for help. Make sure that the people around you are looking at your work. Advocate amongst yourselves, amongst your colleagues, in your larger community for integrity. Really push hard, demand answers, ask hard questions, and be skeptical. Your voice really matters. We, we, we matter as a community, as a professional community, as a research community. We matter. And because we matter, please raise your voice. So thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you guys today. And I'm happy to talk and ask questions and listen to arguments. <laughs>